Welcome to The Gig Is Up, a podcast about the present and future of the local music scene. In this podcast, we converse with musicians, producers, and other members of the local music scene about how this unique point in history contextualizes the local music scene and how we imagine its future. I'm Helena Baracal. And I'm John Pascual. Thanks for tuning in. Totally botched the script there. Oh, well. Fitting, fitting. <laughs> it had to happen at some point. Um, before we get into today's episode, which is a wonderful episode, if I may say so myself, um, we just like to let the listeners of the Gigas Up know that this is going to be our last one for a little while. We are retroactively referring to these past 10 episodes as season one, and we'll be taking a break for, uh, who knows, a couple of months, give or take. For the foreseeable future. But yeah, this is the season finale you're listening to right now. Um, <laughs> Sorry to spring this on, you guys. But yeah, things got a little busy for us. Yo, good problems, I guess. But also, like, where the fuck has the time gone? We started talking about this summer-ish last year, Um, released the first episode in October. And here we are, like, 10 episodes later. Well, 11-ish if you count episode zero, but yeah. Alina, I'm indebted to you for drunkenly uh pitching the podcast to me and i was why also, doesn't he bring up the past i was also thankfully in enough of a fugue state to be like yeah, yeah sure why not thank you for agreeing and carrying us on your back for so long too we've been kind of like learning as we go through this but i've told you this before like you never dropped the ball so i'm really grateful to like to have done this project and to like yeah to continue this project when we're ready to come back to it oh thank god i'm so relieved to know that i haven't fucked shit up immensely oh god of course not go pa give yourself more credit thank you too Helena, for being like uh always on my wavelength and shit and for always like coming through you really gotta stop reading my mind like stop messaging me things i'm already thinking jam (laughs) very fitting that we're starting this off on sentiments on nostalgia on looking back this episode is about route 196 specifically about the memories we make and the narratives that we form about the old haunts, the old joints that we used to roll in, that we used to dwell in. Our guests for this episode are Ren Aguila and Monica Shoup. Uh, Ren Aguila is a arts and cultural writer um, who has extensively covered the local music scene and is also a student of theology. Monica Shoup is an ethnomusicologist based in Germany who has also extensively covered the local music scene. Her book, Independent Music and Digital Technology in the Philippines is available. You can buy it on Rootledge. In this episode, we're going to talk to them about a paper that they've been working on about the Route 196 closing show that took place September 2020. What it is, what it was as an online experience and uh, how people were commemorating the place and saying goodbye. This was a really interesting episode for us because I think it's the most academic we've ever gotten and probably ever will get, but who knows? There's a lot of ground to cover. I guess a heads up that this paper won't be available publicly for um, some time, uh, which we will discuss. But otherwise, like we hope you enjoyed today's discussion um, because it goes deep, really, really deep. It goes super deep. Monica and Ren share some of their preliminary findings. And uh, it just felt nice to be a student again, to be in that uh, scholarly, scholastic, I guess, uh, headspace, <laughs> just talking to two experts in their field about a place that we loved and had many good memories in. I didn't even think about that. Oh my God. Oh, no, no. I was like, I was kind of just like in awe the whole time. If you don't hear me during this episode, because it's just, I was being a sponge. 
which is like the natural form or whatever. Is that how evolution works? Whatever. We're not going that far back. Just the last year. Reject modernity. Become sponge. <laughs> A recurring theme. <laughs> let's go. Let's go. Let's get to this episode. Hello. Hi. Monica. Good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate having you on. Man, this is crazy. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of big things today, specifically about this big research project slash paper slash meaning making endeavor that has to do with Route 196. But before we get to all of that, let's start with a little bit of background. Uh, Ren, Monica, can you describe how y'all first encountered the local music scene. Siguro, Ren, we can start with you. My classmates in high school were people like Cor Canares, my chemist also, Shudad. They basically, Shudad was one of my batches bands. The other high school batch band we had was, well, few people know about this, but Shirley Beans was the other one. And Shirley Beans gave birth to two major offspring, Quan and Dick the License. And Narda, actually. Ed Ibarra was the founding lead guitarist of Narda. So I had a very musical group of people in high school they could hang out with. Later on, I started falling away. I got to know many of the musicians that were emerging at the time, the Itchy Worms, I got to know them. But after college, I kind of fell away from music. The first gig I actually went to was not in Group 196. The first real gig was in 2009. I went to a Juan night. Juan was doing an album tour. It was in Sakiho, and I literally stayed there all night up until the morning. And that was my first gig. But if you ask me what really drove me to music, it was the fault of somebody named Pamela Cruz who had founded this um, singer-songwriter thing called Folk U back in 2010. He organized it as part of a multi-arts festival that he was putting together. And this was a chance for me to get to know musicians. Um, you know, Mike Amistoso had his Hand and Gabby project there. Kate Toralba had her uh, solo music stuff. And that's how I started getting in. It's slow, slow but sure. But I think Monica should be the one to step in at this point because our stories will intersect and therefore will tell us a bit about how I actually got into music. Yeah, my first encounter with the music scene in Manila was actually online. So at some point... In my research on uh, online music distribution, I stumbled across Numberline Records, and uh, that sparked my interest in independent music in the Philippines. And I guess that was my entrance into the music scene. And back then, that was actually in 2011. So I got in touch with Bobby Benedicto, and he connected me to a couple of people in the music scene. And I wrote a grand application. And in 2012, I was finally able to travel and experience the Manila music scene myself. Ren and I, this is how we met in 2012. Because I guess we were the people who were always hanging out at the shows, especially at uh, Root and at Sagiho. So we always kept bumping into each other again and again. So yeah, that's my entry into the music scene and how our collaboration started also. I started writing about music only in 2011 because uh, in GMA News Online's uh, Mela La Pena ended up inviting me to write for GMA. And she told me, Ren, you go to Folky a lot. Why don't you write about Folky for GMA News Online? And I said, okay, that's a good assignment. So I actually wrote the first music article I ever wrote was something entitled 
Folk You, the gig that changed my life. And it was part personal testimonial, part feature. And I actually, Melly offered to quote herself in that article. So that's how I started. And, and then afterwards, some, some other stuff came pouring in. I, I got a Jimmy News online. I pitched stories covering things like the last admit one gig. I was actually the last admit one, which was for those who were not old enough to remember, admit one was like the proto prods, if you will. And I think a lot of the prods in Manila now kind of have their DNA. Their DNA can be traced back to admit one, just bin themselves um, thing. And I eventually started writing about music. I think my heyday ended up becoming. 2014, 2015, when I was writing for Vandals on the wall and working with Matt Morrison on a project called Indie Music. So that was my hate as a music writer. And that basically got me engaged in a real way with what was going on there. Can I just acknowledge that we're among history makers? Like people who were there for history, but also to kind of uh, record it as well, uh, which I think is relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. But yeah, thank you for your work, for all of your work. What the heck? Yeah, really just like recording stuff before they're lost to time. Yeah, actually, um, when I came to the Philippines for the first time in 2012, I was really surprised that there was no such a thing as a written history of popular music of the Philippines. Yeah, I didn't expect that because my background, I'm an ethnomusicologist, but I have a very strong focus on popular music. And so I'm very familiar with, you know, all the publications of popular music studies that focus on also the music history of certain cities. And since Metro Manila has such a vibrant scene, I was really expecting some publications on that, but they didn't exist. And so this is also, I guess, one of the reasons why Ren and I became friends, because we talked so much about music. Like I sometimes joke that Ren is like the walking history book of <laughs> popular music in the Philippines. Like Ren, you know so much about popular music I history agree. in I the agree. Philippines. And it's just, you know, there is no written source of that kind. And so that was actually a major task for me as a researcher back in 2012 to get an insight into this music history that has not been properly documented up to the present day. So that's also, that was also quite a challenge. And I guess that's also one of the reasons why we're embarking on this project here now, because um, it's also a way of documenting music history and documenting music history making in the process. Monica, actually, as you know, I, I first encountered you in a talk you gave when you visited the Philippines. It must have been... Um, that was in 2018. 2018. I was there too, Jam. <laughs> oh shit, okay. <laughs> My memory clearly is ass. And that was where I also learned that uh, the music scene here suffers from a scarcity of archival efforts. There's just a lack of mechanisms and institutions dedicated to just remembering things. Just for the listeners' information, this was the Everyone is Indie talk at Green Papaya Art Projects, Kama. Yes, I was remembering the fruits. <laughs> it's especially sad because Green Papaya, they had this fire, right? Where lots of the documents and just, you know, archival materials just vanished. <laughs> Super sad. Oh my God, this is kind of what makes all of this so prescient. The disappearance of a lot of music and culture making venues that we've seen over the course of the pandemic, whether it was directly caused by the pandemic or other greater hostile forces. But I'd like to speak to you both now about this research project that you've both embarked on. 
which is this remembering a music venue through narrative and experience in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what you're undertaking is a study on memory making and narrativization of these memories and experiences relating to Route 196 in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. And from what I understand, also seeks to make or consolidate a mythology of what Route 196 is. What brought the two of you to work on this project? I am going to blame Monica for that. <laughs> Actually, after Root uh, shut down, I remembered Monica and I were talking about this at one point. She told me, Ram, why don't we write about it? And I said, that would be a good idea. Initially, as we conceptualized it, this was going to be more comprehensive than what it is turning out to be. So she was thinking, oh, Ram, we should look at all the social media posts and all the Facebook and Instagram stuff. But we ended up focusing, uh, but I, I think what really galvanized us into action was witnessing the closing show. The closing show, for those who didn't catch it, was an 8R affair. It was organized mainly by Red Ninja Productions and the owners of 196. They had everything. They had video reminiscences, tributes. They had performances that were both live and recorded. They had even live podcasts. Wake Up a Jim and Sav had a segment, O'Flamingo, O'Flamingo's podcast had a segment, and For Me Lang Ha, which is a podcast from three musicians, also had a segment there. And it was a remarkable tour de force. Even the interesting thing, they actually had breakout rooms for people to meet and greet musicians. And because this was a fundraiser, you know, we had to shell out a certain sum of money to get in. And I remember going into one musician's room. And this musician was a pretty good one. And he thought, you know, maybe there would be like five or six or seven people. Because I know that this musician isn't popular. And turns out there was just me, the musician's sister, two people from Red Ninja. And I was like, okay. But when I got to Riesen Sangan's room, okay, this is, uh, Riesen Sangan is a good friend of ours as well. And there were lots of people. Monica and I were both in that room. And I remembered uh, we had an exchange before and said, Monica, she has 15 super fans because people are willing to shell out 500 bucks as a fundraiser, of course, to be with Riesen Sangan for 30 minutes. And that was a very nice experience. Um, she knew how to work a room. But what is important for us, at the very beginning, when Route 196 announced it was going to close, they already had a message ready. And that message was, Route 196 is home. And we decided to unpack that. But you say it was me who triggered the whole thing, but um, I would say it was you. So it, this really shows that it's a collaborative <laughs> effort. <laughs> I remember when the Facebook announcement uh, came up that Rude is closing, that you messaged me like, oh, did, have you seen the sad news that Rude is closing? And uh, I remember us, um, you know, chatting. And I guess you came up with the idea that maybe we could write something about it. And then I guess it was my idea to come up with this a study on memory making because um, I'm currently working on another project uh, in the field of you know, music and memory studies. And I read a couple of studies on um, memory making, on remembering venues that no longer exist, 
But the approaches of these studies, they were mostly historical, you know, looking at venues that closed <laughs> decades ago. And so for me, it was uh, fascinating to see that type of memory making in progress, basically watching memory making as it unfolds. And this is what sparked the interest and then gave rise to our study. As Ren said, it was really the final show that we considered to be the most intriguing of the data that we encountered. And because it's it's just so much material, we decided to really focus on this and explore it in detail. That's very interesting to me, Monica, what you mentioned about studies of music venues that are long gone. But what makes your particular study different is that whereas other papers, I guess, would piece together a narrative about a music venue long after the fact, you get to see the last transmission in person up close. We're also probably going to talk about how you saw these things, not just remembered, but also like reenacted. So I'd like to go through this thing, one thing at a time, the abstract, the theoretical framework, the methodology, and your findings. Oh boy, let's go. I feel okay, like let's do that. This is going to be a big boy. In your abstract, to paraphrase, you state that through online observation and participation in the Farewell Show, you, quote, examine memory making focusing on two central and interrelated processes, narrative and experiences, unquote. You also observe how this gives rise to ideas of home and other related ideas and how this manifests in the reenactment of Route 1 and 6 experiences through the Farewell Show. All this in the context of the pandemic and closure of music venues all around us, not limited to Route 196. I think this is a good opportunity for us to get to know your field, Monica. Uh, what makes this work not just merely remembering or nostalgia, but ethnography or ethnomusicology? I remember when I attended your talk and you said you were an ethnomusicologist. I was like, oh my God, that's a thing that you can be? I didn't know you could do that. So I guess, would, uh, could you explain to the people at home, like, what makes this not just remembering, but also um, uniquely uh, your scholarly wheelhouse, I guess? Yeah, it's really about the methodological approach. So um, ethnomusicology employs methods from anthropology, basically uh, participant observation and uh, interviews are central to the approach. And in our study, we um, employed an approach making use of online ethnography. So um, applying this method of participant observation to the online context. So we were there when the final show happened. So we didn't watch it afterwards, but we were there during the whole thing. We also moderately participated. So we tried not to interfere, you know, and, you know, take an active part in the narrative but still we were there and I occasionally, you know, click the, the likes and the hearts. And so uh, I would consider this, you know, as a, as a moderate participation. And we also documented the whole thing and um, conducted an interview with the Red Ninja Productions afterwards. So as we reflected uh, on the final show, we came up with a huge set of questions. So we did like a semi-structured interview um, a couple of weeks after the show with uh, the organizers. And yeah, that's basically our approach, participant observation in an online context. And with that huge data set that we gathered, we spent a whole lot of time 
transcribing um, the interview and also all the different segments of the final show. And we used um, we, we used a method called inductive coding for data analysis. So basically went through all the materials and looked for themes that kept reoccurring. And I use a software called MaxQDA for this. It's, it's, it's like tagging, you know, uh, assigning these, these codes to certain sections, which then gives you a really nice overview. And so this is also where you can show that, you know, certain themes like Route 186 as home, for example, are very prominent in, in the online show because the analysis showed us that it keeps occurring. One of the things that distinguishes this method, you know, participant observation is that we, we aren't just passive observers. We get to engage with aspects of the show. So one of the things we did, the decision to go into the breakout rooms, um, the meet and greets, was part of the research. Although we didn't, uh, we tried as much as possible not to ask any. They had different, very different experiences. The other thing that we did, the interview we did with Gwen Ninja was also very illuminating because it showed not only the anatomy of how a show is put like this is put together, they are ex-presented. I must really commend Nicole, Katrina, April, and forgot there's a, one other person I, whose Terrence. name is, slips my mind. Terrence. Terrence, yes, Terrence, yes. And those four, together with Dietz Fabian, uh, put together an amazing show. I must say, I, I got to, to see parts of it, a large part of it, because the internet here sucks. So Monica had the good fortune of having nice internet. And I found it a very moving experience and also very realistic. So here's one observation that I liked. Um, there was one segment they played, lots of crowd sounds. There were you know, people talking and chattering and chattering. And then suddenly you could hear, okay, I probably can say this, but I identified this uh, voice of a musician and she was saying, oh, let's play now, let's play now, it's our turn. And I was like, wait a minute, are you sure they recorded this in root? It turned out that Red Ninja got clips, you know, public domain clips of crowd noise. I, I don't know if it's correct, but they didn't record it at root. They got some clips, clip of crowd noise. And then one night, I'm going to check the transcript, but they were mulling over something and then they decided to re improvise something. So I was like, this was a very good attempt at reenacting. And it's a theme that we'll be returning to quite a bit, which is reenacting the root experience. So one aspect of the experience is like you're outside in the patio, you're with a musician, and this musician suddenly realizes that the last set is over and they have to come in and set up. That was a beautiful, that was my actually my favorite moment of the entire show. I guess what Ren just described, it, it really shows that remembering is a creative process also. So this is, actually we claim that it's not just a reenactment, but that it's also a, a recreation and, and at the same time a creation also of the root experience. So it's not just about reenacting something from the past, but it's also about creating something new. And there's something that maybe we can also address later on, also creating something, creating a root experience for people who haven't had a root experience before. So that's something that yeah. we, we also came across, that there's lots of people attending the final show for the first, you know, it's their first root gig. Yeah, but there is a word for that. You know, as I'll, I'll just um, lay my cards here. I was gone for three years and I studied theology. It's a scary word for some people, but it's actually a pretty nice thing. And 
um, if you look at the con- one concept that I learned in theology um, was anamnesis. And anamnesis is a word that literally means remembering. But anamnesis is understood in uh, particularly in the theology of worship is this idea that when you remember, when you remember something, you don't just, you know, as a, bring it to mind, you make it come alive for people. You make it real for people. You make it a living reality. And that is something that I felt was going on in this uh, closing show. There was this attempt to say to people, look, this is not just our memory of food. This is a reality that we want you to experience. It was like a sacrament. It is. Anamnesis actually refers to the sacrament. This is actually a term we use to refer to what happens in the Eucharist when the priest says, remembering whatever you did, Jesus, and you died and rose again for us. That's anamnesis. And it is very much a sacramental act. Well, the other definition of sacrament that I'd like to bring in, Monica, I'd have to apologize for going through all the theology talk. The idea of the sacrament is that it's an outward sign of inward grace. Um, and the inward grace, I would argue that the inward grace here is the grace of being blessed by music. And what's the outward sign? Being at Route 196. Okay, that's a very crude way of putting it. <laughs> but part of me, I, I'm having fun with this. What I think is important to remember as we were going through everything, the transcripts, et cetera, is that there is also another something else going on. And I think I'll, I'll move from theology to my other major philosophy and say that this is actually the process of recapturing time in order to make sense of it. And this was something that the uh, the philosopher Paul Ricoeur kept on talking about, and which I uh, insisted on including in the paper because this was a very useful framework for understanding some of the aspects of the narrative phenomena that was going on at the Rupert Six show. Without getting too much into the weeds of jargon, uh, just to keep things accessible, the theory uh, you're working with for the study has a lot to do with two things. One, the necessity of media, and two, the reconfiguring of time. Um, can you talk about that? Maybe, maybe I could I could start with a little, you know, little bit of background on on memory su- studies, and then say how media actually plays into that, because I guess that makes it easier uh, to to understand what we're aiming at. So um, we work uh, from the premise that memory is the past made present. So as as Ren also outlined, it's really something that's happening. Memory making is something that's happening right now, not something that's part of the past. And memory is something that's also always made from a present perspective. And as such, it's not just an objective representation of the past. In fact, it can never be an objective representation of the past, but instead it is shaped by the present. So it is it reflects the interests of those doing the remembering. And it also um, is shaped by the media in which and through which the remembering takes place and um, through which memories are shared. So I think in many ways, the um, memory making uh, with regard to Route 196 is shaped also by um, the social media context, by um, the use of music as a medium of memory, and also by the the agents who are doing the remembering in this instance. So it's not something that's neutral, but it's in fact, it's, it's really shaped by these different 
contexts and agents. So media is really something that's vital for memory making. So without media, memory wouldn't be in a position to circulate and to reach people. So it's, it's, really, it's, it's really essential. Paul Ricoeur basically argues that time and narrative are intrinsically linked. The memory making is a form of narrative. Um, history is a form of narrative. And what does it mean? Uh, Paul Ricoeur basically says, look, the only way we can make sense of our existence as temporal, the only way you can make sense of time is if we tell stories about it. And the process of telling stories is basically reshaping time, reshaping time. Uh, that's what Paul Ricoeur means by configuration. But there's actually a very complex process. When Paul Ricoeur was talking about reconfiguring time and narrative, he was talking about literary texts because literary texts do that. Novels do that to you. Poetry does that in, in a way. But what really happens is that we are being shaped. We are shaping the narratives. In the process of being shaped, we interpret time, we interpret narratives. We are also being reshaped. So what has to do with Root? Because one of the things that happens, and Root 196 experience is actually a kind of a text. You know, Think of it like um, a literary text. Think of it like a poem that you interpret. You think of it like a novel you read and interpret. Did this whole thing as a narrative there's actually a little story that's being told in the closing show you know things like you know once upon a time and let's use let's use the classic fairy tale structure just to give you an idea of what i mean so once upon a time there was this place in katipunan called route one and six route one and six was a home and a safe space for musicians route one and six is where people went to see the latest gig latest indie bands and other performers show up what they have as musicians. And, you know, we all had nice experiences here. We all had wonderful times here. We all discovered music. We discovered friends. We discovered things. And suddenly, we are faced with the fact that Rudy is closing. It's a sad part. It has to come to an end. So, as my father and mother used to tell us when we were little kids, and that's the end. Oh my God. That's Ouch. the end. Let's let that sink in for a moment, ladies and gentlemen. It's been sinking in over the past year. No, but yeah, it's, uh, it's text. It's textual, yeah. So in a sense, how the refiguring of, configuring of time takes place on several levels. If it's a literary text, the experience of root is a text being constructed out of time, then you expect people to come up with different ways of telling that story of you're configuring time. So there are two aspects of it. In our study, we say that there is on the level of the show, the people making the show have their own story to tell. But the other and equally interesting, if not more interesting part, is that Monica patiently went through was what was going on at the comment section of the Facebook live show. And there's many overlaps, but the two sections also differ when it comes to the narratives. So... What was very, very prominent in the final show is really the narrative of home. It's like the central narrative. And um, what Ren said before, this idea of Root also as a, as a safe space, um, Root as a place to grow as an artist, these are closely connected to the notion of Root as home. And in the comment section, it actually looks quite different because that theme of home is much, much less prominent there. It surfaces every now and then, especially 
um, when it is triggered by something happening in the show. For example, Aris Nansanga playing her song Home or in the podcast, you know, the this idea of, you know, Rude as, uh, as a place to grow as an artist, a friendship, whatever, coming up. And then people sort of pe- people pick up on that in the comment section as well. But it hardly ever pops up independently. So yeah, it's, that's quite interesting. And I guess it has to do a lot with the question of who's doing the remembering here. And um, if you look at the final show, so this very much reflects people who are part of the inner circle of the music scene, while the people participating in the comment section, it's much more diverse. And there's a large number of people in there who themselves, they've never been to, to Root. They are not part of the Manila music scene. And so that really reflects the different um, yeah, the different terminology, the different concepts here, different, yeah, different key terms that people associate with, with Root. You're working uh, not just with a diversity of insights, but I mean the sheer scale of it, right? Regarding your methodology, you went through what I assume was this tedious process of transcribing the final show and extracting, well, according to the files you sent me, uh, all 45,616 publicly available Facebook comments. That's a whole lot. Yes, it took ages. Actually, those <laughs> comments, they almost killed me. I have to say, I was uh, also also because I I'm I'm still in the process of learning Tagalog. So, um oh and gosh. it's not standard Tagalog, right? <laughs> So it's really complicated. It also required a lot of, you know, Googling slang terms. And it was, yeah, it was very, very, very time consuming. You also. made it. But, yeah, we made it eventually. My part was uh, help. He was looking through the transcript of the show itself. One of the things we have help here from Iris Berkiza was one of our research assistants, a research assistant here in Manila, who took the trouble to transcribe everything. And yeah, the Tagalog the sections, right? <laughs> yeah, the Taglish, she took care of that. Because I tried, I really, yeah. I tried, but it was not successful. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening, thank you very much. You can see yeah. both of us from thank utter you. embarrassment. But you know, we, we look at the show. Uh, one of the things about this process of going through thousands of comments is that you'll see dynamics um, in what people experience. And Monica and I were talking about this quite often. Like, there's, there's a very good ex- there's some dynamics of what different people do at Root. For example, there's this thread going through the show comments about what people experience at Root. My favorite example would be people would be literally ordering beer on the comment section. So it's on Sandic Light. Is, I, I, I hope I'm correct if there, the references to beer popped up quite often. But devil tofu and devil chicken came up. The pizza uh, also. And the pizza. <laughs> Those of you who remember Root, remember it for the food. The food was really good. I remember that. But it was amazing how people took the cue in a way. They took a cue from what the organizers wanted them to do and made it their own. I, I was so fascinated by um, when, when, when Monica was relating her findings to me. She was, I was like, wow, it worked. And again, kudos to Ninja for helping construct the perfect framework mm. for people to live out their own experience. 
there are many more examples of the kind that you just mentioned with, you know, people ordering food. Uh, there are also uh, announcements to move the car. Everyone who's yeah. been to, to Ruth knows that, you know, parking is, is really horrible. <laughs> There's no parking there. So um, uh, there are comments, you know, like, whose car is this? <laughs> Please move the car. Um, there's lots of interaction also uh, with the music going on, you know, people singing along to the music. Actually, so the musicians who verbalize that experience in, in the, the final show, um, they mentioned that, you know, singing along or the, the audience singing back is also central to this experience of performing mm -hmm. in the club. And in the comment section, you actually you have the um, kind of the mirror image of people singing along, you know, people typing the lyrics. And what I found really fascinating about this is also that it is very creative, that there are many examples of people also changing the lyrics and adapting it, uh, adapting the lyrics, connecting them to the current situation, to the closure of Root, for example, or also on a more general scale to, to what's currently happening in the context of the pandemic. So it's also really I found this really interesting. So there's lots of, um, yeah, we said maybe reenactment is not the right word to describe this because it's really also, mm -hmm. it's, it's creating something new. It's not just, you know, singing along, but it's, it's also creatively interacting with the music and creating a new experience of being part, attending a show at Root here. Yeah, so there's so many examples. So there's the interaction of people with the music. Also, what else is there? Um, then uh, people expressing their emotions over the music. One of my favorite examples among the findings that you gathered, y'all were so generous uh, in sharing with us uh, your findings after this interview, is that apparently there were also references to Makdo which is like <laughs> so on brand for anybody who's been to Root. Many, many a night I have excused myself from the venue just to ride out my drunkenness with greasy fucking fries. <laughs> uh, Helena, did you, did you have like a favorite finding among, among everything? Um, what was interesting for me was actually sort of to go back to what Ren was just saying about people reacting emotionally to what was going on on screen. Now, you said something about how the online space made the emotional engagement even more visible in the offline setting because like, you're not necessarily like standing in a crowd and being like, I love this song. Although you could also do that. It's just that we're not afforded the opportunity anymore. So I, I love that. I think we've touched on this in previous conversations on the podcast, like just because like we can't have live gigs. Just talking about how Weirdly enough, being online has allowed us to be more real with each other faster, uh, which maybe is a bit ironic, I guess, because there's an element of performativity to it, right? Like you're you're typing it out and everyone else is going to see it. Like 45,600 other people commenting are going to see it. Um, I don't know. That, that, that just really gets me, I guess. Nah, it's hard to feel connected to all of these things, to all of these performances. Um, and I guess this is going to this whole thing about recreating slash creating this reality. Now, it's both nostalgic for people who have already been in that environment, but it's also inclusive for people who never got to have that experience. So giving them some measure of that, now they're being invited in, you know, 
which is such a welcome reminder of being part of a community, even in and especially during a time like this. I only got to tune into the last Root Show for a little bit. I think it was during Jim and Sab's podcast. So I didn't actually get to see any of the performances and things. So it was really wonderful kind of seeing it all laid out like this. Everyone was so engaged with each other and with the, with the performances. Yeah. Well, that's also where the idea of, of, of lightness comes in. <laughs> Ren and I were, were talking about this a lot also um, because it's an online show and many of these performances were also pre-recorded. So only some <clears throat> of the performances are live, but we still have the impression that the audience really considered it as a live event. And I guess that has to do a lot with the interaction between that was happening uh, between the audience members, between the viewers and those participating in the comment section. And uh, to, to give it a bit of, you know, theoretical background, actually, um, this idea of liveness, it can actually not only be described as something that has this, you know, a spatial and also temporal component, but interaction is also uh, by a part of it. So there's these different dimensions, as uh, Paul Sandin says in his publication, Liveness in Modern Music. So this is very visible, the interaction that creates that a feeling of, you know, something is going on here. It really has this social dimension where people interact with each other. And, you know, it's a way of, I would say, the final show. It's also a way of, you know, community making in an online space. And uh, it takes on particular importance also in the current context where live music in, uh, you know, live music as gathering in a bar and watching a band perform is not possible. So there's this different mode happening now. Were there things that surprised you that you were surprised to find as you were participating in the Farewell Show and observing people comment in the Farewell Show? The description of the Root experience did not really come as a surprise to me because as a person who has been to Root several times, um, I guess there was nothing in there that I did not expect to be in there. So um, it was not the content itself that surprised me, but uh, instead it was really the complexity and the different layers of memory that um, I did not expect uh, b before we started this study. And to give you an example, for example, the performance of Ben and Ben. So um, here it's not just about the music. So music is one thing. So they're not just playing, you know, random Ben and Ben songs, but they consciously picked songs that have a history with uh, with roots, so songs that they played in their early days um, when they were still associated with root before they got too too big for that venue, and um, they also um, it's also their visual appearance that reflects that period of 2017, 2018, where they were associated with the venue. So it's it's really on different levels. It's the music. But then it is it is also things like visual appearances, and then in the the um, the spiel, it's also the reflections on the memory and, and making it transparent that these songs are actually connected to the place, and that there is a, a common history of the band with the place. And that's just one example. Um, and there is many many more of musicians who really chose songs 
that have a connection to Root were either played in Root for the first time or through their theme, have a theme that resonates with one of the Root narratives, like Rizdan Sangan's Home, for example. So yeah, it's very, it's it's really very complex. It has the the musical dimension, then also the um, verbalization of the experiences, so the narratives, so to say, and um, the visual aspects as well that firmly root the root experience also in in a physical place and also a certain time period of. You know the history of the the music scene. I just wanted to acknowledge that pun, and I appreciated it. Sorry. <laughs> I would like to also talk about the the Ben and Ben parts of the findings, where you observe that attendance of the farewell show peaked at around ten thousand people tuning in. Um, and f- from what I understand from the notes, like, well, Ben and Ben has such a large fan base, and um, there were sort of these accusations going around in the comment section as well about um, oh these Ben and Ben fans uh, showed up just to support Ben and Ben they're not here for root again there's that sort of narrative making going on I know that the easiest reaction or impulse to take um, when seeing this happen is to be angry is to accuse other people of being shallow about how they support the local music scene if they're just really supporting one band but in my opinion um, I think it's all right I think it's all right. There have been many times in which I would attend a gig just to see a specific act in a lineup or a specific handful of acts in a lineup. And when I've seen them, I go outside or I just go home right away. And it's fine. It's kind of what these people insinuate when they call these uh, fans who attended uh, just for Ben and Ben. When they call them shallow, I guess, they're sort of insinuating that, um, you know, you're doing it wrong. But I don't think... The only wrong way to attend a gig is to be a, a dick. But as long as you're not being a dick, it's fine, you know. And I know it, it's a, it might be a, an exercise in futility to talk about gatekeeping when the gates have been demolished. Uh, but yeah, I just like to say that because the, right there are all these accusations going around like, oh, these people like they just do mall gigs, you know. They 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 don't know when it's like to go to bar gigs and stuff. But like, I feel that that's reductive. And I personally would like to put on the record that there must have been that it's fine. And there must have been people who are fans of Ben and Ben also did tune in to the entire Farewell show. Yeah, and there's different types of, you know, different levels of participation also in the music scene. And I guess that is really nicely reflected in the final show where you have on the one hand where you have the, the performances and the podcasts by the people who really have a central position in the scene and then you have the comment section where you have a whole range of you know other types of belonging or not belonging to the scene so you know different connections where uh there are some i saw some people posting that are central parts of the scene as well but also there are also people who are either just there you know for a certain act or who heard of Root and are just, you know, interested in checking it out, but don't know any of the bands playing. So, so it's really, uh, it's really diverse. Actually, I want to jump in and second Jam's um, observation, because I can tell you the truth. I, I have gone to gigs um, specifically because of one or two acts that I really like. And it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, 
honestly. And I felt that the backlash was kind of unfair because I like to say that my fair, my mom and my sister, for example, discovered local indie music thanks to Ben and Ben. They listened to Sensor Gateway Drug, but they were like, oh, this is the world that Ren goes to. They, they would talk about, oh, Ren goes to Route 96, that's where Ben and Ben play. And I was like, I said, oh, I felt we finally felt an identification because I, I could tell you the truth. My parents, were, they were always befuddled as to why I would go out late at night sometimes just to see a, a musician. And later on, when they realized that, so when I six on actually one of the representations of when I six we didn't examine in this study was the portrayal of group one six in the movies. It would have been a nice side study. And there were three films that represented group. One was Rock and Roll by Mark Canaris. The other one was Angawawala by Marie Hamora, which uh, I just uh, Monica and I uh, just declared an interest. We both appeared in the we were both extras in that movie. Oh, cool. Okay. History makers. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the last film, actually, was one of those recent films was called LSS. And Ben and Ben was prominently featured in Group 196. Now, here is the problem with LSS. Uh, somebody, actually a number of people pointed this out. LSS was made by a person who apparently didn't have a knowledge of what actually goes on at Group. So one of the things they put in there for drama, for a dramatic effect, was basically put a bouncer in Group 196. And I was like... Which I'm going to point to say never be part of the concert. If they really wanted to be realistic, they'd put out Koya Mads in the show and then they'd be like staring him down. <laughs> it would be a staring contest between Koya Mads and the guy. But you know what? People learned about Group 196 from that movie. And more than I, I'll bet you, many people learned from Angawawala or Rock and Roll. What's interesting is that, you know, the conflict revolving around the Ben and Ben fans is really. I would say it's like the only real conflict that appears in the whole thing. So otherwise, I guess the prominence of these themes of, you know, friendship, family and community, um, they have a side effect. And the side effect um, I would claim is that there are also themes that are sidelined, that are marginalized or well, maybe even silenced. And to connect this to memory studies, again, um, memory study scholars like Astrid Erl or Alida Asman, they frequently point out that um, forgetting and oblivion is part of memory making as well. So what's very notable, I guess, is the absence to a very large extent of, of politics in the, the final show and also to a large extent in the comment section. So, and I guess this has also has to do with the fact that this is something that potentially creates a rift in the music scene. And it's something that, you know, talking about these topics, it's it's going to endanger these key narratives of Root as a place where friendships are formed. And um, it doesn't match the image of the scene as a coherent whole. So, yeah, we would claim that it's really, you know, sidelined by the prominence of these other key themes. I believe this is probably going to be a helpful disclaimer for anybody who might come across a study, uh, which is that um, you guys aren't setting about to create a monomyth uh, of Route 196, like, like an all-encompassing um, narrative that explains all the nuances and tensions and dramas that have ever been experienced ever in the space. What you said, Monica, about 
oblivion and forgetting uh, is that oh that is part of memory and it's also it's simply a limitation of like who gets to attend these gigs um, and how this gig was studied even and perhaps one way to contextualize these limits and the ways that we forget is to think about as both of you have mentioned earlier who gets to tell these stories and by extension who doesn't get to tell these stories people who didn't attend the gig who didn't attend the farewell show or have never been to root but have literally their first time going to root was literally the farewell show i'd also like to point out that if you're listening if it was your first time to attend root at the farewell show you are in the music scene if that was your first gig ever you're in the music scene if you go to mall gigs mall gigs are also part of the music scene i don't know why we don't consider them part of the music scene the, the gig circuit isn't just bars I just want to say, put some respect on mall gigs' names. Yeah, dude. Like, not not my favorite way to consume music, but like, who said they're invalid? Come on. Like, I find that kind of comment more disrespectful to the artists than, you know, the people like clamoring for that artist to actually come out and perform already. You know? Exactly. Like this weird stereotyping. I actually agree with Helena's uh, characterization of mall shows. It's not, you know, being part of the scene. And I like how you're democratizing this space. I, I I hate to say this, but one of the things that I found appalling, I, I, had, I had to lay my cards on the table here. I've had, I'm actually proud when I see some of my physician friends play mall shows. I remember there was a serial gig, just, just a non-rude memory, but it's a mall show memory. So there was a time I was working at this company in Technohub and I had to rush over to a meeting in Sakiwa. And and I was on the way, I went to Trinoma and the reason I went by Trinoma was Rieslan Sangan was going to play a mall show. And this was very interesting. I think the organizers went to get Reese because she was a popular internet uh, singer. She already had a fan base of some sort. Reese was playing her greatest hits, but you know what she did? She dropped a musical bomb on everybody. She did her back in the day, Reese was into loop looping and she did a performance of Imogen Heap's, um, like a, an Imogen Heap song. Hide and Seek. Hide and Seek, yes. Reason Sangan, at that time, this is 2015, she was well known for doing Hide and Seek live. And it was an amazing experience. You know, in the huge cavernous space, people stopping and listening to her do Hide and Seek. It's a very different experience from being at Wedding Six, but she's doing the same thing. It's really the reclaiming in a way of food experience by people, by all sorts of people. It's a here comes everybody kind of moment. Because one of the things that happened with the pandemic is that you've seen the barriers of entry collapse. We were, I think uh, you were both alluding to this, barriers collapsed. And uh, well, while we're here on the, on the subject of inclusivity, inclusion, Ren, this isn't really part of the study, but I'd like to ask you about it anyway. Sometime last year, you wrote an article published on Earth and Altar entitled The Church is Home, Why the Church Must Go on the Road. I know we touched on theology earlier, but in this particular article, right, you talked about the root experience through the lens of theology and how the church can take a lot of pointers from Route 1 and 6 in terms of community building. Could you talk about that for a little bit? About like, oh my God, <laughs> as church, but also like the idea of like making your arms longer just to be able to embrace everybody? You know what I mean? Could you talk about that for a little bit? Well, it, it, the article was a theological experiment. I actually I remembered asking a number of people about what they liked about Root. 
there are two levels of this. There's a very pastoral concern about um, how do you cope with the fact that you're disclosing? What can religious communities do to help people cope with the grief? And I, I was making an overall point, basically, that the churches can take positive steps to cure people's, uh, to help be with people. But I was talking more about the church reaching out. There is a particularly parochial concern behind it that I, I don't want to mention here because not everybody knows the context I am writing from. But I was thinking, you know, what if faith communities were more like Groot and more like places of welcome and inclusion uh, in a positive sense? If there is anything about the Root experience that I have taken home with me, it's that even on nights when I felt very lonely and sad and, you know, felt alone, there would always be that one or two, those one or two people would come up to me and say, hi, Rand, what are you doing here? How are you? What's up? And, you know, I wouldn't feel so bad about it anymore. It felt, I really like it when people take time to acknowledge that you're there. Or even the act of listening to music makes you feel welcome. People will welcome you in that place. It, they, it welcomes all sorts of people. And I, I wonder if faith communities could be those places. You know, step outside your buildings, step outside what your comfort zones, basically. Reach out. And I think that's what this pandemic has been doing for churches. I was told that more people are now attending church than they used to because the churches are now online. But I would say that this also applies to the Philippines, Philippine situation. It just occurred to me, it doesn't escape me, that we're having this conversation on the year of the 500-year anniversary of Christianity in the Philippines. <laughs> That's kind of mind-blowing, 500 years after Magellan came here. Well, I'd like to move on to a well, more personal stuff, I guess. Uh, Ren, Monica, what... Personally, are your fondest memories of Route 196? My fondest memories of Route 196? Um, well, actually, my most vivid memories of Route, I guess, are most of them are from 2012. So one was already mentioned, definitely the Angnawawala shoot. My first time at Route. There's, a, there's actually a quite funny memory connected to it as well. Because as they were filming and we were, you know, being extras, watching the performances, we we're supposed to hold beers like in a proper gig, but they didn't give us proper beers. I suspect it has something to do with the fact that there were actually quite a large number of minors in the audience. So they gave us the beer bottles filled with water and it was such a disappointment. But still, that's really one of my fondest memories. And um, also for me in 2012, Root and Sagihua actually were the two places that provided me with an entry into the music scene and where I established lots of contacts also to, to musicians and scene members. And I remember also hanging out at Root um, after the gigs outside, watching the trucks <laughs> passing by. And um, another kind of hilarious memory is that um, I was hanging out with uh, Diego and Jay of Tarshish after one of their gigs. 
and then the Balut guy, who's also audible in the in the final show, I guess at some point, right, mm-hmm. man? I guess the, the the Balut guy is also part of the the sound collage. Yeah, they actually uh, recorded him. They actually yeah. recorded him. So he's part of that as well. So I I also got the Balut guy ex- experience. So the the guy came by selling the Balut, and I'm so fortunate because I'm a vegetarian and I do not eat uh, eggs either. So I declined. So like, oh no, thank you. Like I don't eat eggs but then i guess it was jay who bit of a piece of of the balut and then showed it to me and i almost threw up so it was also a sort of a you know sort of a crash course in uh, philippine culture i guess for me hanging out outside of outside of root and maybe as a as a last memory to share in 2012 i also um I also had the opportunity to be a performer for I guess I guess it was Ren knows how long the song is four minutes or something four minutes for four minutes I was a performer and I played the guitar for Anbangdang Shirley what that's also a very what? very fond root memory of mine. Unfortunately, what? I cannot remember. I tried to remember the last time. I was at Root, it must have been in 2018, but I was unable to recall. So I remember my first memory, but unfortunately not the last. Monica, you've had such a colorful musical career. (laughs) You've done it all. Ethnomusicologist and musician. It's uh, it's part of participant observation. That was more the part part of the study. Ren, what about you? Oh, okay. I actually have three. Um, no, the first memory was in 2013. I had very big memories of Root, but I started going to Root more often around the time. And I would go to Attraction Reaction Games a lot. And I must thank Kathy and Ange Azuma for putting this all together. They were. This was a very good place for people to listen to music and also to make friends. And But there was one time that I went to Attraction Reaction and... There was, uh, you know, those two long wooden tables that are outside of group with those wooden long picnic tables? They were, they were put together. And then there was a crowd of people I couldn't recognize. There were quite a number of white people. This, this was really unusual. You don't see a lot of white people every day in Brooklyn because everybody's in Makati. And I was, really, was wondering what was going on until Lelo y Claudio, who's now in, based in the Bay Area, it's in the U.S., I asked what was going on. He was telling oh, we're having a Philippine Studies conference here in Manila. And these are the participants. And I was like, what are they doing? They were all doing PhD research on the Philippines. And their first night, and then like Claudio, who's like this, was at this time at the time a big attraction reaction visitor, yeah, yeah. decided to show him, show them what he would regularly experience. And so I would go, I went up to the table and I started to meet quite a few people. And I felt welcomed in a way that I never felt welcomed before. These are people I, I liked because they were smart. They were brilliant. They were thoughtful and articulate people. And not that the other people in group weren't, but this was an unusual crowd. So I hung out with them that night. And for the first time, I was, and I remember another thing that I remember from that night was that they treated me to beer. And uh, those who know me very well, uh, Monica knows this, said, the one beer you should make me that will endear you to my heart 
if you are a druid, just you get me as your Bezenegro and I'll be your friend for life. Now everyone knows. <laughs> You'll have many friends. <laughs> this has been noted. <laughs> I, I have to say this. I've been sober for 18 months, so don't get me Sir Bezenegro. Get a root beer. That's the closest thing. Okay. Um, Sir Negra was actually also absent in the comment section. I didn't see anyone. But same with the Katipunan. I really like that craft beer, the, Katipun, the Katipunan ale. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah. No, nobody mentioned that either. So, well, Monica, you and I. <laughs> but yeah, the people treated me out to beer. Um, that was the one memory. The second memory was me rushing to and from Cinema One Originals mm -hmm. just to catch the Sun Manager's EP launch back in 2014, and I managed to catch her set. And this was and uh, earlier. One of the things that I remember the most about it was that when I got there. She was already setting up. The people were all crowding around the room. I was like, oh my, did I miss anything? And it was a very good set. It was magical. And at the end, you know, and in the, at the Roof 96 Farewell show, um, if you read the transcript, you'll hear April say that she remembers the experience of performing in Darkness, which is one of her best songs at Roof 196. And people would be singing along, oh, that was it. That was the night, that was the night that I experienced that, that she was talking about when she launched the EP. My final memory, though, was actually one of the most bittersweet ones. And this was actually the weekend before I left for the United States. And I can tell you that it was, uh, I was really down. Uh, a lot of people, you know, I was, I hosted a distributed party and there were, I was expecting some people, and some people didn't come. But one of my friends decided to come with me to Route 196. She had rarely been to Route 196. And this was the Friday before I left for the United States. And this was actually the last time I would ever see the Planet 6. Little did I know. And I was hanging out there. It was a Doc Death gig. So JB Balakit, if you're listening, hello, Doc. Doc was there and he was telling me. He was, as usual, he knew, knew that I was leaving. So he was. He struck up a conversation with me one last time. And my friend was with me. And he was, and he leaned over and whispered, Ben, is this your girlfriend? And I was like, very defensive. He just said, no. <laughs> but I, I, I was, um, I felt a little melancholy. You know, for all I could say about it, there were, there were good times and bad times at me, but I would miss that place. I mean, I've been there as often as, more often than any other music venue in Manila, if not more. And this became pretty meaningful for me because not only because of, not because of the music, but because of the friendships that I've made there. Because of being... You know the people I've encountered. They were some of them became my friends for life. I mean, some of them I still am in touch with. Some of them are I don't know. Here's the thing about the root closing show. Um, maybe one reason that people didn't want to talk about politics or anything very, very sensitive or you know, root when I say this farewell show was a funeral. You know, at funerals, at funerals, you never talk about politics. You never talk about anything negative you never talk about anything that you know i i would say that this was one long eulogy this narrative i i don't know if monica and i are going to write this up in our final paper but my conclusion if you ask me what the farewell show was it was one long eulogy if ever you uh those who i don't know if the video is still up of the 186 closing show it is okay if anybody wants to catch that Look out for the segment by Bel Certeza, the founder of Indie Madilla. In that segment, she gave one of the most moving eulogies for Route 196 I had ever heard. 
here's what Bell said. Hello ako si Bell from Indy Manila. Gusto ko lang magpasalamat si Route 16. Grabe, manungkot yung balita na magsasara at sinuloy ka mawawala. But sobrang naging malaking parte kayo ng eksena. At actually, unang kong naisip nung in-announce ninyo na magsasara na kayo is paano yung mga ipang musikar na alam mo yon bago pa lang nagsimula. Inisip ko saan sila pwede kumugtog pagkatapos ng pandemic na ito. Malaking bartend talaga ang yung Route 16 na nasa akin personally. Pangalamang bahay ko na yung root and actually hanggang ngayon hindi ko pa rin alam kung paano ko isusulat ang naramdaman ko sa nangyari na sa rana yung root na ng six. I'll skip over a bit and then she said something about what most people felt. There's a, this was just an undercurrent of this in the root farewell show. Feeling ko hindi mawawala yung root one ng six. So ayokong sabihin goodbye. Gusto ko lang sabihin na kita-kita tayo ulit. Tingin ko magkaroon ulit ng Group 196, hindi man Group 196 ang pangalan. Pero yung spirit, yung friendship, yung pamilya na feel namin lahat sa Group 196, tingin ko babalik yan. And kasi the fact that nabubuhay kayo sa puso namin lahat yun. I don't want to say goodbye, Bell Certeza said. I want Group to be back. And so many people And, said you know, that. That's really a recurring theme. Not wanting to say goodbye and hoping for Ruth to come back. That leads me to my next question, which is that, well, it seems that the research you're doing also involves studying grief, right? One thing I've observed while watching music venues get wiped off the face of the city is that we never really got to say goodbye to them properly. We can't call it saying goodbye properly. Most of them release an announcement and then get scooped out and hollowed up empty dry wall bunkers right where people used to be and while route 196 was able to throw a farewell show even then that wasn't enough the ideal goodbye situation is we all get together stand shoulder to shoulder all sweaty and scream our lungs out until the sun rises but that's not what we got you know so like i guess what i'm trying to ask is perhaps that's part of the process also that was also part of the show that this was a goodbye but refused to accept that it was a goodbye, but didn't want to admit that it was saying goodbye. Is that fair to say? It was a defined farewell, in a sense that people, I mean, if you think about it, to tell you what the mythic importance of Root is at this point for me, and I bet you some people will agree with me on this, Root is like a rallying point for what used to be the Manila music scene as it stood before 2020. It was... A totem pole. You know, if you play it through as an indie musician, you could play anywhere. You could, you could, you could see yourself made. There is no monument. But one aspect of mythologizing around one and six is this is a place where people became who they were. This is a place where the scene galvanized. This is a place where indie music in Manila said we refuse to die, even though people were saying that. Oh God, do I have to say this? Do I have to say that OPM was dead? There was a point where people kept on harping on that. And I would say, I would like to quote Bin Denzel, it never died. And if you want to show one place where that never died, it was Route 196. It was ironic that the people who were talking about how OPM was dead were the very same people who would be an attraction reaction on a Saturday evening dancing along Bong Banding Shirley. And it was, they refused. This was the defiance. Now, there is no politics in the again, because it's a eulogy, you don't expect people to um, talk about politics, but the biggest political act you can make right now is perform. This is what I would be saying to organizations out there. 
keep putting your stuff out. Refuse to say that you're going away. Refuse to say that you're giving up. Uh, refuse to say that the society, the system, that the new normal will eat you up. Don't, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on creating. I can't imagine. And I don't know if one in six will ever come back the same way as, you know, I, I the sentiment, I kind of agree with the sentiment that Route 186 will be back in some form, but it won't be the same when it sticks. But you know what? The spirit of it will be. The spirit of it will survive. At the risk of sounding like I'm undercutting the grief mm-hmm. and the melancholy here, I'm not. Um, quite the opposite. I would like to honor it. According to your findings, politics did come up in the comments quite a few times in that I believe it was during the sets of Bullet uh, Dumas and John Oindana where there were little rallying cries and pockets of dissent going on in the comment section, like vocally criticizing the president, right? And just being like, Duterte, fuck off. This is your fault. That route is gone. And I say that to honor the grief because this was also people who are part of the music scene, who are part of the Route 196 community, who are cognizant of the closure of this venue as symptomatic of a greater systemic problem which is that government negligence allowed a plague to happen, which allowed businesses like Route 196 Yeah, I agree with that. This was one of the most surprising findings. Monica and I did, I would love, I think, I think I'm glad you decided to save this bit for later in the show. Because honestly, you know, I have, I have friends who are in politics, who are trying to make things change through working with the system. But to tell you the truth, we're up against something bigger than this. We're up against something very, and I like to say that people who actually raised this issue, that Duterte had something to do with this, uh, the president had something to do with this, I'd call it their bravery, uh, for being very brave to say that. But at the same time, I wonder I wonder why, and I can tell you, I uh, wonder what, what this could lead to. What pockets of the music community are out there trying to fight that battle? I think one of the most bold political acts that any that the music scene made was this alternate trip organized song. I forgot the name of the song, but it was a, a whole group of musicians that came together to sing about what the government was doing, to sing about what people needed to do, what people needed to act up and listen. And I don't think it was even again to honor the grief was real. Grief at Route One Eight Six is closing was real, but. Here's what Paul Ricker had to say about that. The reason that you have to refigure, I, I, I hope I'm doing justice to what Paul Ricker was saying, but Paul Ricker, who is far from being a radical, would say that the reason that we reconfigure time that ultimately leads somebody to ethical action. Oh yes, that's the one. The video. The reason we refigure time is ultimately for us to be transformed by it to take action. Texts are supposed to tell to goad us into changing our lives. Texts are supposed to make us realize that our actions have consequences in the world. In fact, Paul Ricker was so concerned about that that the next text he wrote was an ethical text, um, oneself as another. And he basically said, your identity is established by being called to a prophetic vocation. That's what he said at the very end of his Gifford lectures. And what does a prophetic vocation mean? You got to speak out. You got to respond to being called to do something bigger for the world. 
I hope I'm doing him justice by requesting him justice by saying that. But if it isn't, then then it's on me, basically. I was not expecting uh, Paul Ricoeur to come up as much as he did uh, over the course of this conversation. But I'm happy to hear uh, that he has an intellectual place in the legacy of Route 196. Helena, were you going to say something? I'm trying to figure out how to articulate what I was thinking. That everyone here and everyone who attended that uh, last show or gone to any Route show, any live show, loves music, right? And I guess I'm. We've been talking a lot about how like things have changed in the music scene because of the pandemic. Like as a natural consequence of this like global tragedy, is that it's forced us to kind of reevaluate what really matters. You know. We were expressing how we don't appreciate like this like gatekeepy attitude in the music scene, as well as talking about like how all of this is actually connected to like the wider social political atmosphere. And I guess I'm just thinking about how like I guess it feels natural then to think about how that love can translate to action, can translate the service for the wider music scene. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to connect the thought I was having there. Because Ren was saying something about kind of like being called to a vocation of sorts, right? So what is this going to lead to? And like, even if we don't know what that looks like exactly yet, I feel like these things, like the closure of Root, the closure of all of these other places, and like this opportunity we've had to come together in the wake of that can be a good kind of catalyst to at least start thinking about these things and where we can go with them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And even even the work that uh, you, Ren and Monica, are doing, like, is going to be such an important resource for for this and many other things moving forward. Yeah. So I've been a bit quiet for most of this interview, mostly because like I'm really just like soaking it all in, like, because it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to contend with, um, it's a lot to work with, but it's really really important. In that, I think you know that idea of like when when something leaves this world other things rush in to fill up that space so that we never get too far from each other. I guess it's kind of like that. I guess that's one way to look at the closure of Root. You take stock of everything that you've experienced in that venue. Um, and you take stock of the sadness that you feel knowing that you can't be there again, that you can't walk through those doors the same way. I'm pretty sure the establishment, it's a it's an undocks, right? Where Root used to be. Which is a uniquely sad situation. It's an uh, Inang's barbecue shop. Oh God, it's an Inang's. Oh my God. Uh, but yeah, um, you take stock of all of that, and that informs how you move through the world on the assumption that perhaps because you have been made a fuller person by this love that you've experienced, perhaps the spirit of one nine six can arise again. It will probably be in a different venue with a different name. It'll probably be in a different part of the city, but it'll be there and it will be made possible and you will have given rise to it because an aspect of Route 196 lives inside of you. Not to be cliche, but I think that's what... No, no, I agree. I mean, my main takeaway from this, I think, is that one way or another, like, this shit is going to live forever because we're going to carry it with us. As we take this conversation to its conclusion, I'd like to ask you, uh, the both of you, what is the role of a music venue in general in terms of community building, scene building, and being part of a general cultural fabric? What does it do for people? It connects people, definitely. Besides um, being a place where one can listen to music, it is a place that really connects people. And uh, that's very visible 
in the the root narrative as well. Its role really is, you know, making establishing friendships, making connections, a place where the scene takes shape and where community building occurs. I agree with Monica 100%. Venues are, I was going to make the comparison earlier. This is a new form of being church, believe me, believe it or not. Places where people are made to feel welcome, be part of the community, that's what church is about. I mean, it's incorporating people into something bigger than themselves. We were talking earlier about how the scene is a big thing, that it encompasses everything from uh, gigs and bars to mall shows to God knows what else. The expansive understanding. I think a music venue does have a role in introducing people to that sort of place, introducing people to the experience of music and introducing musicians to the experience of playing for people, of giving of themselves. It's a self-giving. Music venues are places of self-giving, if you ask me. At Route 1 and 6, people gave the best selves. People showed off their creativity, showed off their dancing abilities. Yes, I'm talking about the people at Attraction Reaction. People showed off various ways of being themselves, of being honest to themselves most of the time. I would like to acknowledge that there were people who weren't really, who were in these music venues, but felt they had very difficult experiences. And I will say that this has happened to me too. But all in all, I think a music venue is a space where people can be themselves and can give of themselves and can learn to live with other people. There are also spaces where people experience music in a particular way. And I guess a place where people experience music that's also closely tied to notions of place and space. So um, I don't think that physical music venues will become redundant at any point in the future because of that connection and because of the importance of notions of place and space that connect people and that afford a certain experience of music. Because we saw it very clearly in our data that that connection to place was also very prominent in the root experience. So it's not something that can take place independently in an online context without the physical places. So I personally am convinced that music venues will remain important in the future and hopefully come back after the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think Monica said it very well. We will, let's hope that music venues will make a comeback. And if God knows when in this country, but I can tell you, uh, I can't wait for something to come out of this, whatever it is. And it's not just the Philippines. I mean, we, we talked about the situation in the Philippines today, but um, I'm based in Germany and here it's it's just the same. I mean, we're facing a future. Nobody knows what it's going to be like. Right now, there's absolutely no perspective for bar owners, or music venue owners, for musicians. Um, so live music, nobody knows when this will be possible again. So it's really a really a challenging time. For me as a researcher, it's also very important to, you know, keep talking about music and keep talking about the relevance of music also in the context of the pandemic. Because my impression is that, um, you know, lots of the debates, it's really focused, it's so neoliberal, you know, about 
having to you know, rescue certain companies and investing in the health sector. And nobody's really talking about you know, music and the arts, although I think they are really central to people's well-being also, which is for many people, I guess that's become uh, quite difficult. You know, and music is just something that helps people to feel well. So I think it really should be part part of the discussion now. So it's important for me to, well, dedicate time to researching music and also stressing its importance in the current context. We can promise you, Monica, we will keep talking about music incessantly. Uh, I'm going to be annoying about it. And I hope <laughs> That's it great. <laughs> really appreciate that. I will still be your friend. <laughs> We work together. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why you would make that comment, Helena. <laughs> uh, so when can we expect the full paper and where will people be able to find it? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. But actually, <laughs> you, are very, you question. are very likely to be able to to, uh, to read it as a published paper in uh, 2022 because usually... Um, it goes through quite a quite a lengthy process of you know peer reviewing and possibly revisions. Also, I think it would take about a year until it's going to be published. This, of course, depends on uh, also on on the, the the publisher whether you know it's accepted or not. So we can't really tell where it's going to be published. But something I can uh, already say is that we're we want to publish this as an open access paper so that it will be publicly available, not behind the paywalls of academia that are quite common, unfortunately. But maybe we can let you know when it's when it's published and um, spread the word so people people will note it. Wonderful. I was yeah. going to ask you for your permission if we could pirate it. Good to know. Uh, there is no, there's no, <laughs> there, there will be, there so will not polite, be a you know, here's the thing. Uh, we want to get the word out uh, of our study. One of the reasons that we're doing this is uh, we want people to be aware that something like this is going on. Um, we really want to hear from people. And those who are listening to this podcast, if you have anything to say about the root experience, about the experience of music making the role of a live venue, we'd be happy to hear that. If you have to hear that, I don't know what place it will have in our study. As, as far as we're concerned, we're, we're at the point where we're putting everything together. I, I, I hope I can say that. What I would like for people to appreciate, to come away, go away with is that, you know, I, I especially make this appeal to people who are writers in the music business. I'm, I'm reaching out to my fellow music writers. Can we start thinking about legacy building at this point? Because we have a lot of time, believe me. We have a yes, lot of yes. time because the, the gig venues are closed for the moment, so we don't have like music. All the races are happening online, so it's easy to easier to access the music. Now we don't have to go to a physical launch or something again. I think it's time to work on something that Monica and I have been thinking about, you know, legacy building. Mm. In the introduction of her book, by the way, I'm going to embarrass myself. Uh, Monica, <laughs> is, it, is it okay if I told you, tell everybody what she wrote about me? I said that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she said it before. Uh, she said, Red should write a book about the history of Philippine music. Guys, I'm not the only one who can write a book about Philippine independent music. There are lots of you out there in different, the, the music scene is so big. We need more than there one book of, also. There can be yeah, several books. Yeah, we need more books. than one book. 
yeah, we need several books. We need people who are, uh, I'm not going to be the only one who's going to be writing about this. Or if I write, get around to writing about it. I mean, it's a challenge. Those who really love the music, can you think about building a legacy? That's that's all I have to say. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Easy as that. Easy as that. Yeah, it, it sounds easy. <laughs> for now, uh, thank you so much, Monica, Ren, for joining us today. Um, what a wonderful conversation and what an honor to have the both of you um, here on the show. And how fortunate are we that we have this legacy building archival effort to remember the story of what I really appreciate you guys coming on. Do you have any final words you want to leave people with even more than everything you've already shared? Any announcements? Future projects. Where can people find you online even? Yeah. Uh, you can find me at Ren.Aguila on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. I, and I'd like to make an announcement that uh, I think most people, so most of my friends will have noticed by now, but in fall of 2021, I'm hoping that I will be able to go to the uh, Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. I am going to pursue a two-year program, a master's, a research master's degree. And uh, this will be uh, this will be yet another time of exile for me. I will be experiencing another new continent, another new adventure. But I hope to be in touch with people here in Manila because, um, and I would like to build networks between people in Manila and Europe. And here's the thing about Europe: Monica Shoot is in Europe. Ah, how convenient! Europe is big, though. Yeah, I totally forgot Europe is big. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I can pitch some something else here. Um, so for those who want to learn more about memory, we're not tired of the topic yet. I was invited to Manila Composers Lab very recently, and this will be on YouTube very soon. So Jonas Baez and I will be talking about the memory of music and memory of dictatorships. So we'll talk about the memory of National Socialism and also the, the memory of the Marcus dictatorship. So if somebody is interested in that, um, check out the Manila Composer Lab on YouTube. That's, well, not going to be fun because it's not a fun topic but i bet it's very informative and um yeah another perspective on 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 music and memory yeah what else look out for for our study i would say so hopefully it will be published <laughs> in the near future and uh yeah we're happy to get feedback also so for those listening get in touch you can just google me and find my contact details. Uh, I have a website at my university and also an academia edu profile. So I'm Google-able. Is there such a word? I don't know. I think so. <laughs> can people still buy your book? Yes, actually, you know what? Before Brexit, I can I can show that to you here. Before before Brexit, I ordered a whole bunch because oh I was gosh. expecting to be problems, expecting problems with the taxes. So I really, I ordered a stack of books, and I was planning to go to the Philippines because I get a huge discount actually. So I can, I figured I can just you know give give them away for cheap. But now I'm unable to travel, and I have all these books here. My God. First it was Brexit, then it was coronavirus. It's available on Kindle, by the way. It's mm. pretty expensive, but it's worth it because you will never see something like, you know, Monica Schutz's research is so pioneering. Nobody has ever written about the scene as it was in 2012 and between 2012 and 2014. She has interviews with all sorts of wonderful people 
also surrounded by people in the scene from all over, of different parts of it. And uh, it's worth reading. So I'm mean, going to fully endorse her book. It's called uh, Independent Music and Digital Technology in the Philippines. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And I have discount yes. codes also. <laughs> yes. So e email me, monica.shop, S-C-H-O-O-P, <laughs> at uh, loifana.de. We will put this in the show notes. moment of silence for Route 196, who we lost so tragically in the Hellscape Dumpster Fire Circus show of this past year. We started this in the middle of quarantine and here we are still in the middle of quarantine. And like, it's like, it's kind of a fact that Route 196 is like a casualty of everything that's happened in the past year with COVID and our awful government. I was going to say something uh, flippant about the passage of time. But it's not so much the passage of time that I can blame because it wasn't time that took 196 away from us. It was a poorly managed uh, healthcare crisis uh, that was responsible for taking. A healthcare crisis we're still in the middle of. Like, isn't that just fucking wild? This didn't have to happen. Like, just putting it out there. This didn't have to fucking happen. It didn't have to fucking happen, precisely. I, I'm thinking also that That makes the job of archival, of recording, of memory making, and just history making very important. I guess people have always known that it's important, but it's more important now than it ever has been, now that um, things are getting wiped off the face of the earth faster than we can keep track of. And I I think it's really like important to frame this in such a way that it's not just reminiscing for the sake of reminiscing. I guess the danger there is that you forget about the present, you forget about the future, Which won't do, um, because obviously, like, whenever all this ends, there's still going to be a music scene to go back to, to rebuild. And I think that makes it all the more important that we have these records, you know, and we we're equipping ourselves with the tools. At some point in the episode, I asked Monica, like, what differentiates your work from mere nostalgia, right? And she went into generous detail about the methodology that goes into her work. Uh, but also, I think, when it comes to nostalgia, when it comes to memory, those things only exist in the mind. When you are actually memory-making, when you're recording these things, you are codifying these experiences. You're making them tangible. It's the second best thing to grabbing a cinder block from the, know, from the, the demolished structure of Route 196 and keeping it in a safe, I guess. You know what I mean? Like... This work of codifying memory um, makes these intangible experiences holdable. And I think that's important because we want so badly to be able to hold the things that have left us. I love how you articulated that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I guess it just makes me think about in the past year when it would have just been so much easier to disappear. Like talking about all this stuff compels us to be present. To witness it, you know, which Monica and Ren so painstakingly did for for all of us. And not to be like, to like put them on a pedestal or whatever, but like this work is so important and who else was going to do it but them? Uh, I also appreciate that it's accessible, you know, right? I was asking Monica about like, can I pirate it? And then she was like, oh, <laughs> it's going to be free. It's cool. <laughs> thanks, Monica. This is, this is the pro-piracy podcast. But <laughs> thanks, Monica. Now we don't have to resort to that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I'm really stoked about that. And I'm very, very excited for the paper to come out. Think of this episode as like the, I don't know. Uh, a press release. <laughs> the press release. Or like maybe like a No Fear Shakespeare version of the text. <laughs> yeah, what'd you think of this? What'd you think of that? Jesus Christ. It's like, here's the transcript of everything they said. And in the margins, it's you and me going like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Friends, students, PhD people, whatever. If you are currently writing a paper on Route 196, I hope you include us in your review of related literature. <laughs> I don't know if MLA has like a thing for Spotify episodes. Pretty wild, no. There should be something for like recorded material for sure. Oh my God, Helena, we're gonna be on paper. We're gonna be in Scribe or something or JSTOR. I don't think we're including this in like the final version of the episode, but like my most relevant contribution to this was when Monica and I were like, look at our cats. Because like <laughs> my cat was like a small version of her big cat, and I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> That experience also deserved to be codified. That was like one of the highlights of the conversation. That's our season finale, y'all. Thanks so much for sticking around and for being with us. We really appreciate um, all the people who tune in and listen to us. The fact that y'all are listening to us makes this whole thing worthwhile. The thing was already inherently worthwhile to do, but to know that there are people paying attention and being like, I love this episode. Thank you for doing this. It really means a lot. So yeah. Thanks to like my mom and they're like our 20 whatever dedicated fans. <laughs> that one person who left us a five-star iTunes review. Like, you guys are awesome. <laughs> Y'all are great. Y'all are great. Thank you so much. My God, for believing in the no, the underdogs. Are we? I don't know. I, it's weird to consider myself an underdog. Thank you for believing in us is what I'm trying to say. There's not one episode where we don't talk about missing the local music scene, missing like the smoking area, missing seeing all of our friends or all these new acts, whatever, play live. And, you know, I think this was like a, a way for us to kind of tap into that, um, you know, um, and a way for other people who are listening to us to tap into that as well. So I'm so glad we got to do this because like, who knows when we're going to have the real thing again. Um, one can only hope will be sooner than we think. Uh, herd immunity? Who is that bitch? I want to know her. Uh, but yeah, thank you y'all for uh, allowing us to direct our yearning energies at you <laughs> for just receiving the brunt of that. Uh, the music is by Lower Myth. The design for the podcast is by Max Ocampo. And the mixing is by Roy Makasae. You can listen to this podcast on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, where you can also leave us a five-star rating and review. Like, even if we're going to be gone for a little while, like I'm going to check back and see if like anyone's like saying anything nice about us. Um, you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at the PH. And this is the point in the episode where we would typically plug our Kofi, but since we won't be producing episodes for the near future anyway, in keeping with our conversation about Rune 186 and everything it's given us. If you weren't aware, there was an article last January in the Inquirer by Pampastor about Mads Ofalsa, or Kuya Mads, as um, guests of Route 196 know him, who is Root's supervisor and head staff, who last December was hospitalized and had uh, several surgeries afterwards. This news article, I think, was the last like official news piece we've had about him. At the time of writing this article, his last surgery was on January 3. He was able to go home um, sometime after that, but they still had a number of hospital bills. 
And like we know that during this time, everyone is struggling. Everyone's having a hard time. But if you can spare some extra funds to help Kuya Mads and his family, um, we'll be putting the details for donations in the show notes. So that's a Gcash and the bank account um, under his wife's name. Every little bit will help. And if you can send something, I'm sure they would really appreciate it. Every little bit counts. Show your love to Kuya Mads. And while you're at it, if you've got a little more money to spare, uh, give to your nearby community pantry. Those help a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, stay safe. Get vaccinated if you can. Take care. We're going to miss you guys a whole lot. And um, when you see us again... Will we be better people? <laughs> will we be better people? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Wouldn't it be hilarious if like for some godforsaken reason, you and I just like stopped being friends and we just like left this podcast hanging? <laughs> that, would be, that would be so funny. Like Not like... I don't want it to happen, obviously, but like, wouldn't it just be like, <laughs> that's not the plan. <laughs> oh my God. That's like the darkest timeline though. Like, goddamn, there's COVID and we stopped being friends. Like, root gone. And we have to release a fucking statement and be like, we're not friends anymore. <laughs> Our signatures will be on like opposite sides of the screen. <laughs> just to get as far away from each other as possible. <laughs> but yeah, you know what? Um, we're still going to be around, just not as the gig is up for the next couple of months while we, like, recenter ourselves. Jam, where can people find you? Oh, shit. Y'all can find me on Instagram at EMV Pascual. And I also have, like, a music Instagram, which is like a bookstagram, but for albums. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's called an average law and dot average dot law. Um, I write about albums I like on that account. And uh, you can also... Follow me on Substack. That's a blog uh, slash newsletter that I'm doing right now. Um, so that's uh, ah fuck. What 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 the fuck is my URL? It's <laughs> slowdowndilettante.substack.com. That's a Saint Vincent reference. So yeah, y'all can find me there. Uh, Helena, where can people find you? The time I would have spent working on this podcast, I promise myself I will devote it to working on my video backlog. So you can find me at Helena Gigs, so which is like my handle for all of my Helena Goes to Gigs platforms. Um, on like, yeah, all social media, YouTube. I got around to putting up some stuff because I'm pretty sure there's stuff that was like left in my hard drive, which should probably see the light of day. Might as well now. Um, not related to music, but I foster animals. And if you'd like to adopt a cat or something, sponsor a TNR. Like you can find me on Instagram at Liwais Furry Friends. Liwais L I W A Y S Furry Friends. Yeah, I'll be there. Adopt a cat, y'all. Adopt a cat. Okay, that's good. I can't believe we're saying goodbye, but uh, goodbye. Yeah, I want that we never speak again. Like that. That's what this is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone uh, who stuck around these past couple of months. If like, if for some reason this is your first episode of The Gig Is Up, like now you have some time to like go through our backlog, which is like 10 other episodes. But yeah, take that time. Listen to that stuff. Yeah, binge us. But for now, bye-bye. Bye.